Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we had not even heard it that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who, had made, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, with, with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. 
And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out, to, cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the, reg- it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we commit ourselves now in this time to hearing from you. Would you speak to our hearts, and would you do the work through the power of your Holy Spirit to instruct us and to build us up and to grow us in faith? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. The problem of evil is an literally age-old problem. It is a question... The question of evil, why does evil exist, is a question that has been around for centuries and will remain until the Lord comes back. Because it's a question that philosophers and theologians, while they can provide answers, don't have ultimate answers. In the sense that there is mystery to this. Why does God allow evil? As you noticed when we read in Acts this morning, Paul encounters evil in a number of different forms in these three narratives. Later he would write in his letter to the Romans, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So what is evil? Well, evil is corruption. It is the depravity in this world. It is all that is opposed to God and to his will. And while most of us can accept this definition or one similar, we might tweak it a little bit, there still lurks behind this the question, from where did evil come? And this becomes even more challenging when we consider the truth that God is good. If God is good, from where did evil come? And when we add to that the truth that God created everything, if God is good and if God created everything, why does evil exist? Well, Augustine provides some help in our understanding of this. And an author by the name of Greg Kukul helps unpack this a little bit. He says that Augustine put forth the following arguments that I think will be helpful to us today. The first argument is this. All things that God created are good. We go back to Genesis. When God created everything, what did he pronounce after he created them? And it was good. All things that God created are good. Evil is not good. Therefore, God did not create evil. The second argument is as follows. God created everything. God did not create evil, as we just said from the first argument. 
Therefore, evil is not a thing. And this is what I want us to understand today. That evil is not a thing. Evil is real, but it is not a thing in the sense that it is a created entity, a force, or a power. There isn't some kind of force in the universe that we call evil that is in opposition to God. That's Eastern in thought, the yin and the yang, or if you grew up on Star Wars, the force and the dark side, right? Those aren't biblical ideas. But rather, what we call evil is simply a description of that which is in opposition to God. In the same way that darkness is the absence of light, so evil is the absence of goodness or the minimization of goodness because we see evil in different forms. We look at the doctrine of the depravity of man. While we are all depraved and there isn't any part of us that isn't affected by the fall, we're not as bad as we could be, right? To say that something is evil is an abbreviated way of saying something lacks goodness or has diminished goodness. In other words, it's to say things are not the way they ought to be. When you look at the biblical idea of shalom, which we typically translate in English as peace, there's much more to the idea than that just of peace. There is an idea of wholeness or completeness. It includes peace, but it's much bigger than that. And one author argues that shalom is the way things ought to be. That what we long for in the new heavens and the new earth, what we long for when our bodies ache and when we see uh, the fallenness of the world and injustice in this world, we long for the way things ought to be. We long for everything to be made right. We long for shalom. And so in this world, we see varying degrees of this lack of goodness, this lack of shalom, And we see, in some cases, things that we would call evil. But we don't call everything evil, even though by this definition, everything is affected because everything, in some sense, is affected by the fall of this evil. I mean, if we say someone is unkind or says a harsh word to a child, we may say, oh, that's not the way things ought to be. That's not good. But we would say something very different if that same person purposefully and intentionally went after that child to do that child great harm. We may call that evil. And I think rightly so. Evil is a term that describes opposition to God, to his goodness, to his shalom. But evil has no substance. It is not a power or a force. It is simply a rejection of God. But yet we do see evil personified, don't we? We see evil personified in people. And those people give the idea of evil power. We can see this throughout history. We can see this even in our own lives by people that we've interacted with who have done us harm. Evil is most especially personified in the person of Satan. But as we see evil personified, we see it represent the powers of those persons, not some power in the universe. So in every case, the power of evil in those persons is limited to the power of those persons. Do away with those persons, and that particular evil is gone. On the other hand, goodness emanates from God. God is eternal. 
God is all-powerful. Guess what that means? Goodness wins. <laughs> evil will come to an end. God will eradicate evil and all that it represents, the rejection of him. But because goodness emanates from God, goodness will triumph. And we see this no more clearly than at the cross, where Jesus overcame evil with good. So while evil is a real thing, it is real in the sense that it exists, it is not a thing in the sense that it is a created power or force. Instead, evil is the spoiling of goodness. It's corruption. Instead, it is not something present, but something missing. Let me add one more important dynamic, and I hope that this foundation helps us better understand our text as we get to it today, and I will move quickly to that. While God could have created a world that was good without the possibility of evil, which is, I think, what we would have all preferred, right? A world without the possibility of evil. This would also have limited that world of the greatest possible good in the created sense. Consider this, certain virtues could not exist in a world without evil. Courage, mercy, forgiveness, patience, self-control, the giving of comfort, obedience. In other words, the story of redemption, which is the theme of the Bible, the story of God overcoming all evil with good. This gospel of Jesus that we proclaim was dependent on overcoming evil. Why God did that, that's the mystery. We don't know. And as we look in our particular lives and the suffering that we may walk through or the evil that's done to us or the effects of evil in the world or living in a fallen world, there is still a great mystery and a great struggle. But the light of Christ shines to expose are all of the darkness, to fill in the darkness with light. And so with that in mind, let's look at these three different responses to evil that we see in Acts 19. And hopefully by the end, all of this will fit together. So in verse 1, Paul returns to Ephesus. Now you remember he had gone back to Antioch to finish his the second missionary journey that he had been on, returns to Ephesus. He, he went through Ephesus quickly, uh, said he wanted to come back if the Lord allowed, and the Lord did bring him back. And right away he meets these people that Luke calls disciples. But Luke is calling these people disciples in a very general sense, not in a, a, a Christian disciple understanding. These were actually disciples, students, followers of John the Baptist. And as we'll see, they're not disciples of Jesus yet. So Paul asks them in verse 2, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And their response kind of shocks us. We haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. Now, we could take that and unpack it, but we don't have the time to realize that they should have heard of the Holy Spirit if they understood anything, because the Holy Spirit's in the Old Testament too. Um, this shouldn't have been a new idea. John the Baptist had a few things to say about the Holy Spirit. Somehow these guys were pretty far removed from the teachings of John the Baptist. They had not even heard of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 3, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
these disciples were not in the kingdom of God. And so Paul asks a follow-up question, into what then were you baptized in verse 3? And they answered that they had received the baptism of repentance, which John did baptize a a baptism of repentance. But John's baptism was not only of repentance, it was forward-looking, right? John was coming to make, make known the way, the one who was to come. It was prophetic. And they missed that message, that important message of John, that really what he was coming was to lay the groundwork for Jesus. They didn't understand that. And so Paul explains this to them. In other words, he explains the gospel, he unfolds this to them, and he calls them to faith, and they believe, and he baptizes them, this time in the name of the Lord Jesus, and lays hands on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. In a sense, these men were caught in kind of a time warp in redemptive history. They didn't have all of the pieces of the puzzle. And so Paul fills in the hole, so to speak, and the Holy Spirit breathes into them new life. And the Spirit also graciously gives them these gifts of tongues and prophesying to confirm this work, which, of course, is a reflection of what happens at Pentecost. We see this happen four times in Acts. We see many people come to faith, but we only see this occurrence where there's the follow-up gift of prophesying in tongues happen four times. We see it happen at Pentecost. We see it happen with the Samaritans. Remember the stepchildren of Israel when they were brought in? The Gentiles, when they were brought in in Caesarea, it happened for the third time. And then this fourth time with these who were kind of in this time warp, these uh, disciples of John the Baptist. We saw Apollos last week was also in that category, but he was a little different in that he had known what John was pointing to. But these were an exception, and so they come to faith. And Paul says, or Luke writes, that Paul stays there for three months, reasoning and persuading in the synagogue in verse 8. And then, as we would expect, comes the opposition. Those who were still in unbelief, verse 9, some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way. They were speaking evil, they were acting evil by opposing God's shalom, the good news of Jesus Christ. And of course, we would say that this is not the way it was supposed to be. So Paul's response was to remove himself. He removes himself after some time, three months, uh, and rents this hall of Tyrannus and remains there for two years teaching, and the gospel spreads, verse 10 says, throughout the region. This is a response to evil, to remove yourself from it. It is the first example that we see. There are times when we need to remove ourselves from evil. This requires great wisdom. It requires the power of the Holy Spirit to discern when this is an appropriate step to take. We'll see in the next passage that there's a time to stand up and fight. And I think Paul certainly did for the three months. He fought against this opposition. But then came the time when he said, no, I'm going to remove myself and these disciples. And so we need to know when the time is appropriate to flee from evil from those speaking evil of Christ, and from those who were doing evil, like those in the synagogue. The second examples I've already hinted at is this second narrative in 11 to 20, where we begin to see Paul was doing uh, extraordinary things. Is that what the text says? Actually, the text says God was doing extraordinary things through Paul. Don't miss that. God was doing extraordinary things through a means, Paul. And he used some things that were also a means, aprons and handkerchiefs that touched Paul. 
There are some in the world today and in history past who have gotten this all flipped around, and they may challenge you through your television screen to send them money for some handkerchief that touched their hand to get some special kind of blessing. Don't fall for it. And that's not at all what we see happening here in Acts. Go back to Acts 19 and reread this if you ever attempted that that's what you need to do. It was God who was showing His power for the sake of the message of the gospel to be validated. And He used extraordinary means. He put His power on display. But it was for His own glory, never for the glory of a man. And yet there are those, just like we see today, who desired this glory. These Jewish exorcists, guess what they attempted to do? They tried using the name of Paul, and even worse, using the name of Jesus for their own gain, saying, and it's comical to read, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. This is this kind of spiritual middleman. You know, they, they didn't know Jesus, clearly. So this Jesus whom this guy Paul proclaims, we're trying to, they're trying to, to, to use this power. And of course, what happens? Well, it's complete failure. So these seven sons of Sceva, the Sceva was a high priest, Luke accounts, but there's no historical evidence for this being an actual high priest, and there was known people to take on this title of high priest, this self-appointed sense of high priest, just simply to have power in religious circles, and this was likely the case with Sceva. He had seven sons, and these were the ones who were trying to use this power. And they were saying by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, but notice what the demon says in response after verse 14. Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? There's a whole sermon probably in that verse alone that we need to understand spiritual power as it is appropriate and never think that it is about the men or the people, the humans that we see portrayed. The demon then gives this man that he possesses power, and the man, as we say in the south, beats the stew out of the seven sons of Sceva, and they run bleeding and naked. But God uses this. And this incident strikes fear in the hearts of all who saw it and all who heard about it, so that the word spread among Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all in verse 17. Thus the name of Jesus was extolled even in judgment. It's important to see that God is sovereign over any and all who do evil. He will not give His glory to another, as we both read and sang today. Then many, including the believers who had been caught up in this practice of the occult, came and they repented. And they gave up their practices in verse 18. And they burned their books in the sight of all, and they counted up in 50,000 pieces of silver. That's no small amount of money that they sacrificed. This is an example of fighting against evil. So sometimes we stand against evil. Sometimes we flee from evil. Sometimes we stand and then we flee, and this requires great wisdom from God. We may also destroy things that contribute to evil, giving up things that lead us astray. I think that that's true literally and sometimes metaphorically, that we rid ourselves. Jesus had said, you know, if your eye causes you to stumble, poke it out. If your hand causes you to, to, to stumble, cut it off, right? This is hyperbolic language to say, take drastic steps to separate yourself from evil. And so it's wise and it's good, even if it costs us great monetary amounts, to rid ourselves of things that draw us toward darkness. And then the third thing that we see, 
In this final part of Acts 19, we see this riot. And what happens as a result of this riot, if you notice, really the disciples, Paul, have nothing to do with this. So what I want us to see is that God is the one who triumphs over evil. And this is really the theme of the whole sermon today. That yeah, there are times where we stand and fight against evil, there are times where we flee from evil, but all the while we are trusting God to triumph over evil. Now the temple in Ephesus, this was a large temple to the god Artemis, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, I mean it was a big deal. And with this was a a large economy uh, tied to the idol worship. And we see Demetrius, who was the silversmith. He created these uh, idols that were sold and created a lot of work for the the workmen who created, uh, took the the silversmith's designs and actually crafted them. And he saw what was happening. The gospel was taking root in Ephesus and it was ruining their business and he wasn't going to have anything of it. And so he gathers the workmen together and says, hey, this, this Paul guy and his message of the way is taking away from our business. And so he uses this to stir up strife and lay the seeds for the riot. The people, upon hearing this message, you know, he hit them in the, in the, in the pocketbook, so to speak. There's nothing that will get our attention more quickly, maybe, than being hit in the pocketbooks, right? So they are enraged and they begin crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They would have certainly grabbed Paul, except his disciples protected him and kept him from their. And then Luke adds that the crowd was in confusion. So, so much so, they didn't even know why they were rioting. Does this remind you at all of things that we see in the contemporary world? <laughs> this happens. It's called collective stupidity, where people just join in the masses and they have no idea what they're doing. This is exactly what was happening in Ephesus. They didn't even know why they were rioting. The Jews got scared. They thought they were going to be criticized because of this, and they wanted to separate themselves from the people of the way. And so they tried to put Alexander forward to speak as their representative, but the crowd wouldn't even give him a chance. They just shouted louder and louder. For two hours, Luke says, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so after some time, in verse 35, we see the town clerk step in and quiet the crowd. The town clerk, the town manager, the mayor, the one who could speak to the financial aspect of it, And it reminds me a lot of what we saw in Acts 18 with Gallio, the the proconsul who ruled and basically set a precedent that the church would not be able to be, be brought back on those same charges by the Jews. In other words, this is your problem. You guys settle this. This is not a legal matter. And this is exactly what he hinted at, saying if these silversmiths really have a case, they can go to the courts with it. But there's no point in rioting today. We need to break this thing up. And that's exactly what happened. Folks, there are times we see evil in the world and we're discouraged. We may even feel overwhelmed by it. We may even feel hopeless. And we need to remember who rules and reigns over all that is in rejection to his purpose and his will and to himself, that which we would call evil. There may be times where we separate ourselves from evils. There may be times where we fight against them. But let's remember as we see in this passage that it is God who is omnipotent and sovereign. And he is the one who ultimately dispels all darkness. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 36.9, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. So evil is real, but it is no thing unto itself. 
It's not a created force or entity in the universe that is at odds with God. Instead, it is the rejection of God by his created beings, his moral created beings, and his created things. We could even see the effects of the fall in creation and how creation groans and longs for redemption. But because of that, we can take great confidence when we consider that to, when we are to overcome evil with good, it is not a war that we are left to ourselves to fight. As the kids learn this week, as you saw them sing this morning with their little armor of God, if, if you could see the craft that they created, put on the whole armor of God, we're told, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Notice it's his armor, not ours. Right? We don't have to worry about crafting it or coming up with it or deciding what it is. It's his armor. And we're told exactly what it looks like. Ephesians 6 unfolds that. You could also talk to the kids. They know the different parts of the armor. It's also not our battle, but his battle. It's his way. And it's his victory, which he also gives us through Jesus Christ. We resist evil. We stand against it. We fight it, but we never do so in our own power. And I can think of no more comforting words or practical application of what we've seen today than in that same letter that I started out with from Paul to the Romans, where he said, overcome evil with good. Let me back up a few verses and listen to what he says. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Lord, we know that evil is real, but we are so thankful that it's not a thing that is in opposition against you or some force in the universe that exists unto itself. But Lord, we understand that we are affected by it every day. We see the effects. We feel the effects. And Lord, we personally know the effects in our own hearts as we live in bodies that are yet to be completely glorified. So as we trust in the fact of our justification and we see your work of, of sanctification in our lives, Lord, we long for the day when evil will be completely eradicated and we will be glorified and we will know it no more. And Lord, in the meantime, cause us to trust you as you rule and reign over all things, even, even using evil for good, as we saw at the cross. Lord, that we would trust you to rule and reign over these things for your glory and for our good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.